It reads, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, who came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because, of their, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Let's pray. God, speak to us through your word to recognize your light. And may we be light in your name. Amen. Like Leah said, my name is Tujer, and I imagine that's not a very common name for most of you. So I want to teach you how to say my name so we can be on a first name basis, okay? Very easy. We'll break it down. Two, like the number two, and Jer, like Roger. But we're throwing away the Ra, though, okay? So it's two, rise gone, Jer. Can you say that with me? Two, Jer. Not too hard, right? Um. <clears throat> I, uh, last week, I shaved off all my hair. And it's growing back. You see a little stubble here. Um, I, I, this is not my normal haircut. Usually, I have some hair. Um, I cut it all off. I was thinking, let's try something new. It's a new month. Let's just try something new. Um, and I was thinking about all the bald people that I know that I think are pretty cool, like Michael Jordan. You know, he's cool. He pulls off the bald really good. Stone Cold Steve Austin, right, pro wrestler. He's pretty cool. Uh, Shaolin Kung Fu monks. I mean, they're really cool. And so I was thinking, I'm just going to cut it all off. My wife, uh, after I cut it all off, I got permission from my wife. She said yes. So um, after I cut it all off, she looked at me and she smiled. And I said, what are you thinking? And she said, I'm not going to tell you. And I said, 
what's that mean? And she said, you look like Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> Not what I was going for. Not what I was going for. But it's okay. It's coming back. I don't know if we're going to do this whole bald thing anymore. Um, talking about my wife, uh, in October, I will be running the Twin Cities Marathon uh, with uh, Team World Vision, uh, seeking to fundraise um, money so that we can help uh, our brothers and sisters in the poorest countries of the world to help uh, bring water, uh, which will save thousands and millions of lives. And so um, I've been training for this marathon, not as much as I should be, but I have been training. And my wife uh, has decided not to run the marathon with me. She hates running, but she has been so kind to train with me by riding a bike alongside of me. And um, these runs can go on for you know, over an hour. Well, as, long, as you get more and more miles, you, you run for longer and longer. And I've noticed that I can't really speak when I'm running. I focus on breathing, and that's all really I can do. I'm a unitasker, not a multitasker. And so uh, the rule for us while we are training is that as I run, and she's biking next to me, she is, to tell, she, she is invited to tell me stories about her life, maybe things that, I have, things that I don't know about her. I've known my wife since I was in kindergarten. Okay, so it's, it's been a long time. Uh, we've known each other for a while, and I know a lot about her. Um, but in these runs, I've come to realize that I don't know everything about her. She's told me things that I have never known before, and I've come to realize that to truly know a person, you need to know the stories, their stories. And, and their stories ultimately make up their life story. So to truly know a person, you need to know their story. And um, connecting that, I, I also realized that in order to truly know God, we need to know the story of God that is revealed in the scriptures. I, I believe that from Genesis to Revelation, there is one big story, what, what theologians call the meta-narrative, the big story, that, that God that the story of God is about God's unfailing love to redeem and restore his people and creation back to himself because there's something that has gone awry, something that has gone wrong. See, the story begins in Genesis of a loving and creative and amazing God who creates the universe out of an overflow of his great love. And each act of creation, if you read Genesis chapter 1, you see, God says, it's good, 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 it's good. And then when he finishes it all, after the Sabbath, he says, it's real good, right? It's really good, it's goody good. And that because, the reason why is because everything is created in harmony and in peace, and, and the, the relationship between God and humanity is beautiful and perfect, and, and humanity is in sync with God. Humanity is also properly loving humanity. There is inter, uh, the, in, the social interactions. There is peace there. And then humanity is also being, is faithfully caring for creation. In all of these relationships, there is harmony. There is peace. The Hebrew word is, there is shalom, a perfect, harmonious peace. But that changes really quickly in Genesis chapter 3. We find that our first parents, Adam and Eve, they decide to turn away from God. They decide to get out of the rhythm, get out of sync with 
God and God's way, and they decide to do their own thing. They decide to do their own thing. Have you ever listened to a band, and then all of a sudden, one of the instrumentalists decide to go off-key, off-tempo? It's not a beautiful thing to listen to. It's very hard to listen to. And I imagine in some ways, this is kind of what it's like. When humanity turned away from God, instead of playing with the symphony and the beauty that God was doing in creation, humanity turned away, decided to go in a different temple, a different note. And, and all of creation is fractured when sin is introduced into the story, and we continue to deal with the effects of sin today. Regardless of whether you grew up in church, or regardless of whether uh, you uh, follow Jesus or, or uh, call yourself a Christian, I think everyone recognizes that there is something that is wrong in our world today. You know, recently in the news, there has been uh, reports about the airstrikes in Iraq, about the hostilities in Gaza. And all of us know, we don't like to think about it much, but we, we, we know about the thousands upon thousands of starving children who are dying daily. We know about the bullying that is happening in our schools. We know or we hear reports about the, the pastors who are cheating on their spouses and embezzling money from their churches. And then even not just outside or external to ourselves, we look inside. We have our own struggles to overcome, our own addictions to pornography, to drugs, to alcohol, to money. There isn't just a brokenness out there. There is a brokenness inside of each and every single one of us. And for many people in our world, many people when they, recog- they recognize and they see the brokenness, they see the, the, the hopelessness. And for many, this is the end of the story. There is no more hope. Our world is broken. This is the end. The, the beautiful thing about being a follower of Jesus, trusting in Jesus, is that for us, the story doesn't end here. Is that good news? I think that's good news. The story doesn't end here. We recognize our broken reality, but we also have a hope that is greater and more powerful than the sin and the death that surrounds us. And the story of the scriptures eventually leads up to Jesus, and I'm a big fan of Jesus. I I am a huge fan of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is my Savior, our Messiah, our friend, our Lord, our King. He's a really big deal, and I'm a huge fan. And Jesus has changed my life, and I pray that He has changed yours. And I know of many people who Jesus has changed. Christian faith is all about Jesus, and I want to know more about Jesus. I don't want you to know more about Jesus. Who is He? What has He done? And why does He even matter to our day? I want to argue, because I believe this is what the scriptures uh, reveal, that in order to truly understand Jesus, we need to understand the story of the scriptures, which so intimately involves the history of Israel, the people of Israel. This is what the world-renowned historian N.T. Wright wrote. He said, Trying to understand Jesus without understanding the story of Israel, how it worked, and what it meant, is like trying to understand why someone is hitting a ball with a stick without knowing what baseball is all about. One of the reasons why it's so important 
to recognize the story of Israel and understand the story of Israel, to understand Jesus is for, I give you two reasons. The first is this. One of uh, what made it possible for Germany to, uh, to, to do or to commit, for, for, for the Nazis in Germany to commit the Holocaust. One of the reasons why that was possible was because German theologians at that time, in the 1930s, began to extract the Jewishness out of Jesus. They began to uh, say that, the, that Jesus was not rooted in Israel's history. And when you take the Jewishness out of Jesus, then it was very easy for the Nazis to say, the Jews are less than human and therefore able to commit the terrible act of exterminating six million human beings. The second reason why it's so important to place Jesus in his Jewish context, in Jewish history, is because of the Bible. On the road to Emmaus, after Jesus has risen from the grave, he meets two of his disciples, and they're walking, and Jesus says, hey, what's going on? Well, he didn't say that exactly, but essentially. And they say, haven't you heard? Jesus, the one we thought would be the Messiah, has been crucified. And then... This is what Jesus responds to them by saying in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to these two men what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He, he spoke to these two people. He took the Bible and said, the Old Testament particularly, and said, look, you guys don't understand that all of this Old Testament stuff was actually about me. What this means is that in order to understand the Old Testament properly, we need to understand that it's ultimately all about Jesus. And the reverse is also true. In order to truly understand who Jesus is, we need to know the Old Testament, the story of Israel. So let's dig a little bit into the story of Israel because the story of Israel is ultimately a part of the bigger story that the Bible is talking about. We see that God's created everything in good, perfect harmony. And then there is brokenness because of sin. There is disease, death, and violence. But the beautiful thing about the God that we believe in is that God does not abandon us, although we have abandoned him. And so he enacts a rescue plan. He calls a human being in the land of Canaan called Abraham at the time, who eventually becomes Abraham. He calls Abraham to leave the comfort of his family and of his land and everything that he has ever known. And God tells Abraham, leave what you know. I'm going to use you and through you form a new people, a new nation who lives out the laws that I give and who demonstrate the love that I have so that the rest of the world can come to know the reality of God. And so Abraham steps out into the unknown, and he does this. And, and Abraham, it's not, because he's any, he's not because he's any better. It's not like, I'm going to look at all of the people and see who's the best. Abraham, okay, he's good. He's handsome, he's tall, he's... No, no, no. It was, it's not because he was any better. It was just because of God's grace saying, I have chosen you, not because of anything you've earned. And the thing is, 
Abraham and, and the nation that would, he would birth was not simply chosen by God to be blessed. But it says that he was, they were blessed so that they could be a blessing. That God was going to bless them to love them and demonstrate the love of God and so that they would live the reality of God so that they can bless others. Because true love and true blessing doesn't just stay where it is given. It continues on. And we see, out of faith, Abraham goes. And then, eventually, uh, the Israelites find themselves in Egypt. And Moses, they, they find themselves in Egypt where they are under the slavery of the Egyptians. And so Moses is, is called to deliver God's people from slavery and to lead the, the, this new nation of Israel into a new land where they can live as a new nation under God's reign and rule so that they could be a witness to the nations. And the, the, the idea was that they wouldn't have a king, but rather that God would be their king. God would be their king. But they forsook, the people of Israel forsook what God wanted for them, and instead they said, we want to be like the other folks. We want to have a human king. We're not as cool as the cool kids. And so God relents, and then God appoints kings. And, and the greatest king, the most beloved king, is King David. And he's appointed king over Israel to administer justice and to demonstrate faithfulness. But after King David, and even during the reign of King David, King David was not a perfect guy, even though he has the title of being a man after God's own heart. He was also flawed and broken as well. But with each succeeding generation, Israel loses sight of its divine calling and its divine mission of living out the laws of God and demonstrating the love of God to the rest of the world. Instead of doing that, they say, well, let's just kind of do what everyone else is doing because it looks more fun. Because it's easier. And so they let power and greed and the world overcome them. And in time, the nation of Israel, a formerly strong and powerful country, collapses and splinters and eventually is conquered by a neighboring superpower. And then they are forced away from their land, forced away from their city of Jerusalem. They are put into exile. And the biblical people of Israel, they knew that something was wrong. They knew that they had messed up. They knew that they were not living up to the calling that God was giving to them. They they knew that although God was faithful to them, they were not being faithful to God. And so in exile, they have this prophecy of the suffering servant. In Isaiah 53 Verse 5, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Eventually, Israel, the people of God, the nation that was supposed to live out the, re- live out the laws and love of God to be a witness to the rest of the world, they are returned back to Israel, but it's not the same because they are a people now ruled by another nation. And they are asking the question, where is God? How is this story going to end? Will God keep his promise? There was a hope and an anticipation that God would do something new. And this 
is where Jesus comes into the picture. This is so important to understand the story of Israel because as you understand the story of Israel, you come to realize that Jesus is the climax of that story. Jesus is the one who fulfills that story. When we realize that Jesus is intimately connected to the story of Israel, we realize that Jesus is the new Abraham. Jesus is the one who is called and sent by God the Father to embody what Israel was supposed to be. Completely faithful to God, living out and embodying the laws of God and demonstrating the love of God to the point of death. Death on the cross. Not only is Jesus the new Abraham, he is the new Moses. He delivers God's people not just from slavery from the Egyptians, but from slavery to sin and death and to offer new life in himself. Jesus is also the new David, appointed as the messianic king, not over just Israel, but also over all of the world. Philippians chapter 2 says that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not only is he the new David, Jesus is also the suffering servant, the one that was prophesied of in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. He is the one who conquers sin and death and evil by dying on the cross and rising again. And the cross is a, it's, it's, it's been something that's been so emphasized and so important in Christian history, and, but yet it's also, not something that, it's also something that's not very popular to talk about, not very, uh, it's not really cool anymore. And we can't lose the cross, though, because it is at the cross where we see the love of God most demonstrated to us. It's at the cross where we see the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, sacrificing himself for the sins of the world, for our sin, for your sin. John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. It's on the cross Jesus is executed, and as he is executed, he executes the power of sin and death. He conquers over sin, death, evil, Satan by dying on the cross and rising again because death is not the end. Sin does not win. Rising again, resurrection changes everything. Resurrection changes everything. The earliest disciples didn't just see the spirit of Jesus rising from the grave. It wasn't a phantom or a mirage. The Bible is very clear. The Gospels are very clear. The book of Acts is very clear that they saw the risen, resurrected Jesus. Thomas touched Jesus' wounds. There was something physical to touch. Jesus ate with his disciples. There was something that had happened. Jesus was actually present with his disciples. Something had happened to Jesus' broken body, crucified body. It was somehow transformed into what uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 calls an imperishable, glorified, eternal body. How did it look like? I don't know, but I'm sure it was cool. I know that there's an objection here. You know, it's like, man, did resurrection actually happen? All of us know that dead people don't come to life. When we think of dead people coming to life, we think of zombies, right? Well, I can, I can assure you that Jesus was not a zombie. 
Leslie Newbegin, the theologian and uh, missionary to India, wrote this. Resurrection is not a new problem. The church has always recognized that the resurrection is something utterly unique, something which cannot be explained in terms of the ordinary laws of physics and chemistry. But there is one analogy for, for it, one other fact which cannot be explained by the laws of physics, chemistry, and biology, and that is the fact of creation, the fact that a world has come into existence at all. The Christian church has always maintained that what happened on that Easter day was a kind of a new creation, the beginning of a new era for the world, the first fruit of God's intention to recreate the whole cosmos according to his glorious purpose. That, I believe, is the truth. I do not believe that on any other basis one can make the sense of the subsequent history. In essence, a new begin is arguing that, yes, this is unique, this is miraculous, this is amazing, and we cannot explain it with the sciences that we have. But in the same way that we cannot ultimately explain why creation exists at all, sure, there are theories about the Big Bang and stuff like that, but why does it exist? We're answering, we're answering that sometimes with the how we think it exists. But the why, and Nubgen argues that in the same way that um, new creation, uh, Creation itself comes into existence is the same way or in a similar fashion how we can understand that the resurrection happened. It is a one-time event. It isn't something that we can test in a test tube, but it is something that is the beginning of what the scriptures call new creation. And secondly, how do we respond to the resur- uh, if, what, if whether or not the resurrection actually happened? I would just ask you this. Would you die for a lie? We have to remember that the earliest disciples, the ones who were following Jesus, the ones who had been with Jesus for three years of their entire life, when Jesus was arrested and crucified, where were they? They were in hiding. They were running. They were afraid. They were cowards. But it is after seeing the resurrected Christ, it is after being filled with the Holy Spirit, that they are transformed from cowards into courageous men and women. So much so that as they share the message of Jesus, knowing that they could and would be persecuted. They were willing. What transforms cowards into courageous men and women? So much so that they were willing to die. In fact, many did. I would argue that they truly did see the resurrected Jesus. So we see that the solution to the problem of sin, the remedy to the death and dying that we see in the world, the medicine to the disease that devours our souls and societies is found in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus embodies the way of God perfectly. Jesus demonstrates the love of God completely. And in Christ, in Christ, all of us here, we are forgiven, made new, transformed, and made alive. And this is the invitation, not just for the Jews, but for all of us, for all nations. I've heard it said before that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people come to life. That is what Jesus is doing. And he he does that through his resurrection. The resurrection is our hope for our own future resurrection. That our decayed and dead and broken bodies, our broken spirits, will be transformed into glorified, eternal, and imperishable bodies that will live on with God for eternity. And that death is not the end. 
But this is so important to recognize that the, the Jesus resurrection isn't just for the future, it's actually for us today as well. Because if God can raise Jesus from the dead, we believe that God can also raise other things that are dead and dying in our lives. Do you believe that? Because death affects more than just our bodies. There are lifeless and dying marriages. There are dying friendships, estranged family relationships, hatred between faithful church members, people who don't know God, people who are dying spiritually, persons who are dying slow deaths because of their addictions to drugs and alcohol and greed and money and everything else. I think if we're honest, we have to confess that many times we forget about the power of the resurrection. We have simply given up hope. Many of us think that when we look at something that is dead or dying, we just say it's dead and done for. Is that true? We have forgotten that we believe in a God who exudes life and not death. But I want to remind us all here that we have good news. God has not abandoned us. God has not left us in our hopelessness. And that resurrection actually changes things. I want to tell you guys and close off with this story. <clears throat> there was a woman who got married when she was really young. She did not want to marry her husband, felt, felt like she had to. After many years of bitterness, disrespect, and multiple cases of infidelity on both sides, they came to a place where they had to decide if they would remain married or not. In the midst of an impending divorce, she came to a Bible study and heard the message of Jesus for the first time, that God loved her, that God would forgive her of her sins, and that she could be a new creation. And so she became a Christian that night. And she knew that there was things that she had done that contributed to this dying marriage. She recognized her wrongs and repented. Her husband wanted a divorce. And at times she did too, but at other times she didn't. She was struggling and she thought to herself, what should I do with this dying marriage? What should I do? And so as a new Christian, she went to all of her Christian friends and asked them, hey, you know, this is what's going on in my life. What do you guys think? Every single one of them, every single one of them said, you guys have irreconcilable differences. Just get divorced and move on. Every single one of them. But there was one person who said, I think God can do something with this. And that was my wife. My wife told her that although much wrong had been done in the marriage, God could renew it. And although there was, it seemed like a hopeless situation, God could breathe new life into it. And although everyone, including her, believed the marriage was dead, God had the power to resurrect it back to life. This woman found hope in the words of my wife. And one year later, she wrote my wife this email. I think what happened in my marriage is a miracle because there was no love between my husband and me, especially for me. I don't think I ever loved him, cared about him or respected him. But now I'm different. God is changing me completely. I do appreciate the fact that he is my husband. You know, I used to hate him because I always thought he ruined my life by marrying me. I can't believe how I was able to stay with him for such a long time without any affection or respect. I think I should let you know how happy we are in God now. We pray together, go to church together, and read the Bible together, although not always. Smiley face. Look, this isn't a fairy tale ending. It's not a happily ever after. They still have much healing to go through but they're beginning their life anew. God raised this dead marriage back to life. 
we as Christians must be a people marked by hope and marked by the resurrection. This is one of the great gifts about being a follower of Jesus. That not only can God transform our bodies, but he can transform our relationships, our minds, our situations, and everything else. Nothing is too big for our God. So I close off with Anne asking you this question. Where does God want to see resurrection in your life? What is dead? What is dying? If you need help, I, I hope and pray and I encourage you to go to church leaders. They want to walk with you and serve you in this time. And I end with this. God wants to save you, not condemn you. John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says this, For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Come to him, my friends. Let's pray. Gracious God, I think about how challenging life can be sometimes and how we can, instead of turning to you, turn away. God, thank you for being faithful even when we are not. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son. Thank you so much, Jesus, that you conquered death on the cross and that you rise again to give us new life. May we, all of us here, trust in you and all those things that are dead and dying in our life, I pray that we lift them up to you, that you would give us resurrection life. We pray in your name. Amen.